It's the 26th of November in the year of our salvation 2008. It's the middle of the week, Wednesday, between the last Sunday of the year, of the liturgical year, and the first Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. And you're back with Father Z and another podcast. Today we will look briefly at a hymn in the Roman liturgy, in the Roman breviary, and in the liturgy of the hours. We'll listen to it and look at the changes that were made to it in the reforms after Vatican II. Also, since it is the day before Thanksgiving in the United States, we'll look at a Thanksgiving Day proclamation from one of the presidents of the United States. And finally, one of you listeners, a participant on the WDTPRS blog, has sent me a reading of a poem, a version of one of the ancient Roman poet Horace's most famous pieces in Scots. I can hardly wait to share it with you. We'll have that at the end of the podcast. So let's get right to work. Rome, master of the earth, in the 18th year of the emperor Tiberius. Our legions stand guard on the boundaries of civilization, on the foggy coasts of the northern seas to the ancient rivers of Babylon, the finest fighting machines in history. The people of 30 lands send us tribute. Their gold and silver. The life of clerics, that is, bishops, priests, and deacons, along with most professed religious and consecrated virgins, is punctuated every day by the recitation of the Liturgy of the Hours, the office. Each day we are obliged to recite either individually or together the Church's official daily prayer. Now, since Pope Benedict's great gift to the Church, Summorum Pontificum, the motu proprio which freed up the older forms of the liturgy, we also can freely use the older form of the Liturgy of the Hours, which was found in the Breviarium Romanum, the Roman Breviary. In the newer form, we usually call it the Liturgy of the Hours, or Liturgia Orarum, but the older form was mainly found in the Breviarium Romanum, the kind of short book, the short Roman book. Now in some monastic communities, uh, for example some Benedictine houses, they maintained their older and traditional forms of the office, uh, so important for their spirituality and their daily lives, their, their work, God's work, their opus dei. And in praying the office, all of these clerics and religious uh, who are set apart, that's uh, what cleric means, a person who is set apart, set apart for God alone, consecrated to God, taken out of the temporal realm and put into the sacred realm. You know, we have different sacred places and sacred things and sacred times, but we also have sacred persons. And uh, many of these clerics are consecrated in a special way and set apart precisely to pray and intercede for the church and the world. And so all over the world, at every hour of the day, 
At any given moment, you should know that there are thousands of people praying for you, praying for members of the church, but also for the whole world, for the whole human race. And the office, and the office, of course, office comes from a Latin word meaning duty. And it's a duty which is performed either in an official way because we're obliged or also uh, in a voluntary way, officium. Uh, the office is very deeply rooted in the recitations of the Psalms, the Psalter. The Psalter is what we call the whole body of Psalms together. And in the older form of the office, all 150 psalms were prayed every week, which made the office rather long. Uh, but in the post-conciliar form of the office, in the Liturgia Orarum, the Psalter is divided up over a four-week cycle, which repeats itself. And also in the structure of the office, there are readings from Scripture, and hymns and short selected readings perhaps from the fathers of the church along with scripture and uh, also describing the lives of saints or they might be taking, taken from the writings of saints and also from the documents of the church. So we find in the office really uh, a, a way to drill into scripture and tradition and the magisterium of the church, all three sources of revelation, along with the other kinds of traditions that we have of, say, for example, uh, writing, uh, geographical writings about the lives of saints. You know, it's really uh, interesting in the old form of matins. Matins used to be divided into into three different sections or nocturnes. And they were called nocturnes, of course, because everything for matins was sung in the middle of the night, even though uh, the, the, the word kind of means morning. It was sung in the middle of the night when it was dark. And so these different nocturnes were sung, and very often the second nocturne was given over to readings about the lives of the saints, especially the saint whose feast was being celebrated. And so sometimes in uh, in clerical circles and ecclesiastical circles, uh, there was an old phrase that a person lies or exaggerates like the second nocturne, because some of those older uh, hagiographical writings of the lives of saints in the second nocturne sometimes were a little bit fantastic uh, to be believed. Um, since the council, there has been a great effort to try to provide far more, uh, shall we say, historically accurate documents and uh, readings and so forth to tie in together with the church's calendar. I think that's one of the reasons why so many feast days were moved. But that's really a, a topic for another another podcast, isn't it? Uh, once upon a time, or at least uh, for those uh, people who are using the older form of office now, all 150 psalms were prayed each week, but now it's divided into a four-week cycle. And we use this cycle and this beautiful structure of our office, uh, the constant rhythm of it and repetition of it, so that we uh, intercede for the whole world, but also so that we are shaped by it. We are shaped by how we pray. There's a reciprocal relationship between what we believe and who we are in our Catholic identity and who we are as men and women, disciples of the Lord, uh, by how we pray. It, it shapes us. And if we believe certain things, then we pray in a certain way. If you change our prayer, you over time you change our belief. And so the constant rhythm and repetition of these prayers shapes the one who prays them. And uh, now even though only certain people are obliged to recite it according to that rhythm, uh, which is uh, several times during the course of the day, uh, many lay people have also started to say parts of the office at least, uh, uh, such as their morning prayer and the evening prayer, uh, either alone or sometimes in groups. You'll see them in parish churches praying before or after Mass, sometimes morning prayer or evening prayer. The hinge points of our day. 
You know, it's interesting that each day, th- this issue of rhythm, I think, is important for us to consider. You know, each day has its rhythm, doesn't it? And But so does every year. Uh, every year, Holy Church presents us with the whole history of our salvation and the mysteries of our Lord's birth and life, death and resurrection, and his second coming. And the church does this in a beautiful cycle of feasts and seasons, with uh, each feast having its own time of penitential preparation, followed by festive joy. And every year, Holy Church repeats the cycle. We don't, you know, pick, well, like we're going to do it this way this year. No, the, the, the cycle is repeated. And we are presented with these mysteries in an unchanging pattern. But every year we change, don't we? Every year we are able to return in the cycle to these mysteries and glean more from them. You know, our faith has to seek understanding. It's uh, sadly the case that a lot of people stop really studying or trying to deepen their faith after their childhood, maybe after their formation for Holy Communion or Confirmation or whatever it might have been. They just stop studying. They stop, you know, being interested. Well, the liturgical year is uh, a very uh, good and important and very beautiful way for us to continue to drill into and try to glean more from the mysteries of the Lord and, and the whole history of our salvation. Because remember, you know, Christ uh, came into the world to reveal us more fully to ourselves. And so when we are in contact with him in the church's liturgy, he is the real actor in every liturgical action, then we are also learning more about ourselves. And every one of us was given something to do by God given some work in the world and we need what God will give us and how he will shape us through the liturgy of the church so that we can each do our own work properly. So this cycle of the liturgical year, the year of salvation, is very important to us. It's called the year of salvation for a reason because it points us and helps us to our salvation, how crippled we would be without it. Now in this year's cycle uh, and year of salvation, we have finally come to the end. And in the newer post-conciliar calendar, which we celebrated uh, this last Sunday, just a few days ago, we had the Feast of Christ the King. Now in the older calendar, the Feast of Christ the King is on the last Sunday of October. But the feast these days Uh, is at the end of the year, probably so that we can stress the kingship of the Lord after the second coming. Remember that the Lord will come in glory to judge the living and the dead, and uh, he will take all things to himself, as Paul tells us in his letter to the Corinthians. He will take everything, all of creation to himself, and submit them to the Father so that God might be all in all and the great unending kingdom the reign of the kingdom of God will begin God will be our perfect focus uh, an absolute fascination we will never tire of him and his beauty and what we can gain from him in in the beatific vision but The fact is, is that he must be the king in the center of our hearts and all that we do in this life, and not just the next life. He must rule over every dimension of our lives. He is also king of this world. Now, this world has its prince, which is the enemy of the soul, Uh, but there is the king, and the perfection of his kingdom will not be manifested until the end of time, but he nevertheless, in those who desire to belong to his kingdom forever, in the, in the happiness of heaven, should mirror his kingship here in this world as well. And so in the church's liturgy for the Feast of Christ the King, we sing of his, the kingship of the Lord, and his kingship here and now in every dimension of life, but especially, at least in the post-conciliar 
uh, way of celebrating Christ the King, especially his kingship and the life to come. But, you know, it's interesting that the older Feast of Christ the King stressed something a little different. It stressed his kingship here and now in every dimension of our lives. And uh, we can find that there's a change of theme or a change of emphasis in the church's prayer in the liturgy for Christ the King from the way it was before and the way it is now, or at least in the older books and then the newer books. Remember, you know, we can use the older books now too. And to find this theme and see what happened, let's drill down into one hymn for the Feast of Christ the King, the hymn that's used for Vespers. It's called Te Seculorum Principem. This is the this was the hymn in the older Breviarium Romanum, and also the Antiphonale Monasticum, which monks Benedictines used to use. But it's also still the hymn in the newer Liturgia Orarum. Now, since most of you are probably interested mainly in the newer forms of the office and mass, I'll stick mainly to the newer version here. But I'm going to point out to you the parts that were changed. Now, first of all, in, in order to get into this, I think we ought to crack this hymn open by hearing it. I'm sorry that I don't have a professional recording of some monks or a scola cantorum doing it, which would be far more edifying. Uh, you're going to have to put up with me singing it first. And I'm going to use the Liber Hymnarius. This is a hymn book, the Book of Hymns. And some other useful chants. It was published in 1983 for the newer office by the monks, the Benedictine monks at Solem, a great monastery in France. It was a great center of the liturgical renewal, the liturgical movement. And so uh, it was important for the revival of Gregorian chant. They put together editions, very important editions, uh, for the use in the church's liturgy. Uh, alas, these things have been honored more by ignoring them than anything else. Uh, but uh, there are some places where they're used, and I have my old copy of the Liber Hymnarius, and I can now sing for you the hymn Te Seculorum Principem, as it is in the newer form of the office. And to help you get into this, I'll give you a, a kind of a literal, tra slavishly literal translation of what does the prayer really say. Um, I'm not trying to be, you know, smooth or poetic, and I'm just kind of, kind of go along here and uh, uh, do this on the fly. But a couple of things that you can listen for are the um, the connection of Christ's kingship with how he reigned from the cross. That that was really his first throne, and another throne that he has is our altar as the Eucharistic Lord. So, here, listen to this translation. We profess that you, Prince of all ages, you, O Christ, are the King of the nations. You are the sole judge of all hearts and minds. We, exalting, say that you, whom prostrate multitudes adore with heavenly hymns and praises, are supreme King of all. O Christ, peace-bringing Prince, subjugate rebellious minds and in your love gather into one flock those going astray for this you hang arms outstretched on the bloody tree you show a heart burning with fire pierced with the sharp spear tip for this you are hidden on altars in the image of bread and wine pouring out salvation on your children from your pierced breast. Glory to you, O Jesus, who rules the scepters of the world. Glory with the Father and the loving Spirit for endless ages. Amen. Now, those were six verses. Now, the older version, interestingly, has eight. Two, version, two of the verses were chopped out. But let's hear the hymn now in Latin with the melody uh, with which it is traditionally sung. 
Te seculorum principem, te Christe regem gentium, te mentium, te cordium, unum fatemur arbitrum. Quem pronadorant agmina, himnisque laudan celitum, te nos ovantes omnium, regem supremum ticibus. O Christe Princeps Pacifel, mentes rebelle subice, tu quoquamore devios, o virilunum congrega. Ad hoc cruenta barbore, Pendes aper disbracis, diraque fossum cuspide, corinie flagrans exibes. Ad hoc inaris abderis, Vini da pisque imagine, funden salutem vilis, transverberato pectore. Jesu tibisit gloria, Qui contamore temperas, cum Padre et Almo Spiritu, in sempiterna secula. Amen. That was the hymn for Vespers for the Feast of Christ the King from the Liber Hymnarius. In other words, it's the version for the newer office, the Liturgia Orarum. And my apologies, you had to put up just with me. Uh, it's so much better when you can hear it sung by uh, monks in choir or a good scola cantorum so that you can really get a sense of it, especially when it's in a building with great acoustics. But there were six verses in that. The older version has eight. Two of the verses were chopped out of the hymn. And also, the second verse was rewritten. Now, the second verse, as we heard it, uh, said, uh, We, exalting, say you, whom the multitudes prostrate, adore with uh, hymn, heavenly hymns and praises, are the supreme king of all. Now the older version uh, of that verse uh, says the wicked mob screams out we don't want Christ to reign as king. We exalting say you are the king of all. You see what they did? They took that that our own, you know, acclamation. We say you are, you know, supreme king of all, but they they shifted it, didn't they? They they shifted the emphasis to the end of time or to the heavenly liturgy. But the older version uh, really goes back almost like to tell the tale of Christ's passion. You know, remember we had uh, in there. Uh, you are, you know, you are the, the Prince of Peace, right? But you hang outstretched, arms outstretched on the bloody tree. Your heart is pierced with a spear tip. And now you're on the altars. You see, uh, it, it roots it here in this world. So you go from the mob screaming, crucify him, 
We have no king but Caesar. But what the hymn is really saying is that the king over the Caesars is the Lord. That he is king over the temporal sphere. That's why it was important to have that in there, you know, the, the mob that doesn't want to be ruled by anyone. See, rejects, uh, rejects you. And that's kind of what happened when that verse got rewritten. But I digress. Anyway, let's go back and take a look at the two verses that were cut out that are no longer in the hymn as it appears in the Liturgy Orarum, but as it still is, it's still in the, the version in the older form. So verses 6 and 7, here's my translation. May the rulers of the nations extol you with public honor. May teachers, judges, worship you. May laws and arts have you as their model. May the standards of kings submitted shine forth dedicated to you. Bring under your gentle scepter our homeland and the homes of your citizens. Now those are the two verses that were cut out. Te nationum presides honore tollant publico, colant magistri judices, leges et artes exprimant, submissa regum fulgeant, tibi dicat insignia, mitique sceptro patriam domosque subdecivium. Notice how the theme was expunged from the newer version of the hymn. Christ is the ruler of the temporal realm also in the older form. Christ has to be the king of kings of the political and intellectual and cultural sphere, sphere here. He must be the reference point to which all things are submitted by politicians, educators, and artists. Now I ask you, dear friends and listeners, has the world benefited from the changes to that hymn for Christ the King? Now I can hear, you know, maybe some of you might be saying out there, well, f but Father, but Father, that's not fair. I mean, what difference does one hymn make? After all, you know, it's a good thing to pray about the, the end of times, too. I mean, we believe that there is a kingdom to come, and that's what we really, that's really our goal, right? That's our true father, heavenly fatherland, right? Our true patria, right? Well, yeah, may, that's that's certainly true. And I'm not saying that in the Feast of Christ the King, the way that we pray now is bad. But I believe that the world is really affected by how we pray. Just as the surface and the depths of a pond are affected when we toss a stone into it, or maybe like skip it across its surface. But for some reason, because of what was in the air back then when the changes were made to the liturgy, or maybe because churchmen of the time were really nervous about the role of the church in the modern world, or nervous somehow about saying to all of the rulers and governments of the earth and the intelligentsia and the academic sphere and the artists and everyone in the world, no, Christ, Christ must be your point of your your point of reference he must be the king of all that you do if you are a politician christ must be king over you you must reflect his kingship in your ruling you must reflect him as teacher and king if you're going to teach if you're going to be an artist his is beauty his beauty as the heavenly king is what you should be reflecting in all that you do in the music that you write in your paintings and your sculpture and the buildings that you design and everything that you do I don't know, maybe they were a little nervous about that, about announcing that and proclaiming it to the entire world in a clear way and in, and doing so in the way we pray. 
Because remember, the way we pray has a reciprocal relationship with what we believe. If we believe certain things, then we will pray a certain way. If we pray a certain way, we will come to believe those things. But you see, if we cut certain things out of our prayer life, then those things will begin to fade from our identity. So I ask you again, friends, listeners, has the world benefited from the changes to that hymn, For Christ the King? Now the feast itself was shifted away from October. It used to be celebrated in October, and that was a time when atheistic communists celebrated their revolution. It was shifted to the end of the liturgical year in order to connect it more with an eschatological focus, more with the end times, the four last things, than the this worldly concerns that we Christians have in shaping each little corner of our lives everywhere in the world we might be. Holy Church shapes you through its prayer. The clergy, you know, your priests and your bishops shape you and prepare you, lay people, so that you can go out into the world and shape the world around you, each according to your own vocations. Now our membership in the kingdom, which is going to come only to its perfection later, must be initiated here and reflected here, now, in all that we do. It might be the political sphere, it might be education, it might be the arts, whatever it might be, whatever little corner of the world you occupy, Christ is the king of your little corner. Now one of the fruits of Samorum Pontificum is the reintegration of these older forms of prayers with their very different concerns obviously, as you can hear, back into the prayer life of the church. Now, this has just been one tiny glimpse into what happened and why we pray as we do. This is a glimpse, really, into what the prayer really says. As I speak, tomorrow is Thanksgiving Day in the United States of America. This holiday is now celebrated usually on the fourth Thursday of November. Uh, it was shifted to that time in 1941. Before that, it had had other times. And there's a long history of how the United States, uh, we have in the United States, we have celebrated Thanksgiving Days. Uh, but one of the first uh, and most historic Thanksgiving proclamations was made by George Washington during his first year as president. He set aside Thursday, November 26th, uh, the anniversary is today, as a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. Now, I'm often uh, rather frustrated by uh, what I hear very often in the media uh, is kind of a rage against being thankful, openly thankful to God for everything that we uh, enjoy uh, in, you know, the, the freedoms that we have as, as citizens uh, in my country, and I'm sure in your countries as well, if you're not United States citizens, for the bounty that we enjoy uh, as 
uh, in wealthy countries here in Western civilization, and even, you know, the great advances that have been made in the third world. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have so very much to be thankful for, life itself. And, of course, on the in the spiritual realm, all of the gifts and graces that God gives us freely, which we do not merit, and especially the gifts of Christ's sacrifice for us so that we can be saved for the sacraments, for the church and her teaching, uh, and uh, for the opportunity to uh, worship him publicly as a church. These things all we have reason to be thankful for. And I'm very frustrated uh, when I hear people trying to shove God out of the public square. Of course, as we approach Christmas time, we're going to hear a lot of this in the press about all sorts of people who object uh, to anybody saying Christmas because it has the word Christ in it. These Christophobic people, as uh, recently the Archbishop Cardinal of Toledo um, referred to uh, them when uh, a court in Spain said that they had to take crosses out of classrooms. There's this terrible Christophobia out there and uh, fear of God, probably coming mainly, I'm guessing, from people who have very bad guilty consciences and that's why they don't even want to be even reminded of, of God. They don't want to be reminded of their own sins. But um, most of our countries are founded on uh, founded by people who had deep beliefs in the Almighty. And this is at the heart of Western civilization. It's the heart of Christendom, which gave us Western civilization. And so to those uh, you know people today who maybe don't have much of a historic you know perspective, it's interesting to go back and read a proclamation of thanksgiving from the 26th of November in 1789 uh, issued by George Washington. Let's listen to the text. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. And whereas both houses of Congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God, especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. Now, therefore, do I recommend and assign Thursday, the 26th of November next, to be devoted by the people of these states to the service of that great and glorious being who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation, for the signal and manifold mercies and the favorable interpositions of his providence, which we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the great degree of tranquility, union, and plenty which we have since enjoyed, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government for our safety and happiness, and particularly the national one now lately instituted, for the civil and religious liberty with which we are blessed, and the means we have of acquiring and diffusing useful knowledge and in general for all the great and various favors which he hath been pleased to confer upon us. And also that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and Ruler of nations, and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions, to enable us all, whether in public or private stations, 
to perform our several and relative duties properly and punctually, to render our national government a blessing to all the people, by constantly being a government of wise, just, and constitutional laws, discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed, to protect and guide all sovereigns and nations, especially such as have shown kindness unto us, and to bless them with good government, peace, and concord, to promote the knowledge and practice of true religion and virtue, and the increase of science among them and us, and generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. Given by my hand at the city of New York, the third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1789. George Washington Sometimes I think we get locked up so much in the present that we forget where we came from. We lose continuity. And we do so in the secular sphere as well as in the ecclesiastical sphere, don't we? Having a good historical perspective is so very important. We can learn so much about ourselves by seeing what people struggled and went through before us, what their sentiments were, what their motives were, what their worldview, their frame of mind, how they related to each other and to their nation and to Almighty God. We need this perspective now. And I think it particularly uh, appropriate that we take a look at that or that we you know hear that proclamation from 1789 uh, after you know what I was saying about the feast of Christ the King that he is the one who must reign over all of the spheres of our lives we have uh, every duty and every right to be thankful to him publicly and to manifest our membership in the kingdom in every sphere of our lives. One of my favorite poets is the ancient Roman Horace. Uh, he's the one who inspired me to call uh, the place where I stay in the United States the Sabine Farm. You see, Horace had his villa out in the countryside, in the Sabine countryside. That's where you used to go to get away from Rome and the madness of the madness of Rome. And uh, a few days ago. Uh, an excellent blogger whom I check every day, the Laudator Temporis Acti, I have him linked on my left sidebar, uh, posted a version of one of Horace's most famous poems, Ode Number 111. That's the first book in the 11th Ode. Uh, it's, uh, it, that's the poem that contains the very famous phrase in Latin, Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. Well, the Laudator Temporis Octi found a really interesting version of this ode by a Scots poet, Robert Ferguson, who died in 1774, and it's in the Scots language. And I don't understand a whole bunch of the words in it, uh, at least I wouldn't if uh, the Laudator hadn't included uh, a little vocabulary. 
Um, just as I do in my articles, what does the prayer really say? I always include some vocabulary. You know, he went to the dictionary of the Scots language and he gave some of the vocabulary along with the text. Now I have posted the text in one of my blog entries on the 22nd of November. You can go to the blog wdtprs.com, whiskey delta tango, papa romeo sierra.com or you can google father z or you can get there by going to father z online now that's f a t h e r z online.com a little easier than wdtprs isn't it uh, anyway on the 22nd of november just a few days ago i posted an entry with this wonderful poem this version of the carpe diem ode of horace written by robert ferguson well uh, i wouldn't even try i wouldn't attempt to read it for you because I would just make an absolute just hash out of it. But I put out a request to a reader or a listener if you uh, from Scotland who could read this for us and get me an audio recording and someone took me up on it. A fellow by the name of Martin in Scotland made me a recording by leaving a voicemail using one of my Skype numbers. I use Skype. I have a Skype address. You can always leave voicemail for me. At uh, My Skype address is WDTPRS, but I have two incoming phone numbers where you can leave voicemail, one in the USA and one in the UK, and you can find those on the blog entries. But uh, what I'd love to do is share this with you. I want to share his recording. But first of all, uh, let's hear what the poem says. I'll read it in Latin and give you a, a, a translation, a literal prose translation, and then we'll hear Ferguson's version, version read in Scots. Don't ask. It is forbidden to know what final state the gods have given to me and you. Leoconaway, and don't consult Babylonian horoscopes. How much better it is to accept whatever shall be, whether Jupiter has given many more winters, or whether this is the last one, which now breaks the force of the Tuscan Sea against the facing cliffs. Be wise, strain the wine, and trim distant hope with short limits. While we're talking, grudging time will already have fled. Seize the day, trusting as little as possible in tomorrow. Neque sieris scirine fas, quem mihi quem tibi finem di dedrint leoconoe, nec Babylonios tentaris numeros, ut melius quid quid erit pati. Seu plure siemes, seu tribuit Jupiter ultimam, quae numco positis debilitat. Pumicibus mare tyrenum. Sapias vina liques et spatio brevi, spem longam reseces, dum loquimum fugerit in vidia etas, carpe diem, quam minimum credula posturo. Good evening, Father. This is Martin, calling from Bonnie, Scotland. I'm about to recite the verse. I'll say it twice, because I'm sure to make a mistake, so you can edit as you see best. Anyway, here we go. Without a dram, heaven help me. 
Ne'r hash yartun for God's decree to be the weird of you or me, nor deal in cantrips kettle cunning to spear who fast your days are running. But patient lippin' for the best, nor be in gowy thoughts depressed, whether we see mere winter's come and this that spits with canker foam. Now moist in wheel your gizzent was with fruity friends and hearty blows, ne'er let your whole power gang your days, for yield and thrall and never stays. The day looks gash, to daff your form, nor care a stray about the morn. There you are, Father, I hope you didn't fall off your chair laughing too much with it. Uh, all the best. God bless. Love to read your postings. Very educational. Thanks a bunch. Bye now. Many, many thanks go out to Martin in Scotland, who was so kind as to take the time to read that poem in Scots, that version of Horace's ode from Book 1, Number 11. The famous Carpe Diem Ode. It's fascinating to hear it read in Ferguson's version by someone who really knows what he's doing. I'm very grateful that he took the time. Uh, With that, I'm going to wrap up this podcast. We've been all over the place. We've dealt with Feast of Christ the King, Thanksgiving Proclamation, we've been to ancient Rome, and we've been to Scotland. And now I hope that uh, you, with your hearts and minds turned in gratitude to God, will enjoy a wonderful Thanksgiving day. Even though you're, you're not in the United States, give thanks to God. Remember that Eucharist, Eucharist is a word that means Thanksgiving. We should always be thank, thankful for everything that we have received from God, even our trials. And I thank you for all of the support that you have given to the blog and to these podcasts and to me personally. And I will continue to pray for you and I ask a prayer for myself in return. 